0: And so it's a joy to be here, I think it looks a lot more like heaven as well, and uh, good to be here to speak to you on the subject of origins, creation, the claims of evolution. Hands up those who haven't been here for the race talk or the dinosaur talk, hands up. Would you just make a note of those names, please? (laughs) Okay, Uh, we're going to go over some of that stuff this morning as well. And we're going to speak specifically this morning of the impact of Jesus Christ on culture and creation on culture, the biblical message of creation on culture. And you know, these are important questions. Yeah, maybe he, you, you, I'm sure people here have different ideas about origins this morning. Everywhere I go, people have got different ideas about where we came from and how God created if they're Christians. But I think something we can all agree on is that it is an important subject because our origins goes to the very heart of purpose and meaning and identity and, and hope for the future. And so, uh, let's engage Our minds this morning and think on these subjects. You know, especially young people today have many questions. Over the last 18 months or so, I've had probably I don't know seven or eight, 12-year-old, 13-year-old kids challenge me with this question: "Who made God?" And I began to get suspicious, and I found out that they're actually been given that in life orientation classes at school, and of course they're not being given a sound biblical apologetic in answer to that question. That question goes back to the atheist Bertrand Russell, famous atheist. And they've being fed it as, as ammunition against the knowledge of God. And later on that, God is replaced by evolution in the curriculum. And you know the Bible tells us that we should be equipping ourselves to make a decision to anyone who asks for a reason ...for the hope that is in you. We should be ourselves as believers to answer those kinds of questions. Are we up and running here? T, do you want to take that? Okay. And that word defense or give an answer is apologia, the Greek word for apologetics. Defending our faith, the reason why we have faith in Jesus Christ... And in the Word of God, the wonderful Scriptures. There was a little boy who had a question. He said, Mommy, where do people come from? So his mother took him to the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and she showed him how God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on day six, uh, took some of the dust of the ground, and out of it created the first man, Adam. And the Bible tells us we're all descended from Adam. So the little boy said, Well, where do ladies come from? So his mom said, well, God knew that Adam needed a wife. Uh, men needed wives. Some of us desperately, thank God for my wife. And so later on day six, he caused the deep sleep to come upon Adam. He took a chunk of flesh from his side. And out of it, he created the first lady, Eve, that Adam said would become the mother of all living. We're all descended from Eve. So the little boy was happy with us and he went off, but he woke up a few mornings later and he said, mommy, i got a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> We're an international ministry. We've got offices in seven countries around the world. Uh, we've got 12 PhD scientists working for us full time in different parts of the world and many, many other supporting scientists around the world as well. And we produce information to share and equip believers with these sorts of answers from the scriptures and from the word of God. And we share this information in a number of ways. Firstly, our website, outstanding website, six new articles every week, Um, over 11,000 articles on that website dealing with just about anything you can think of, any question you can think of to do with Origins. And a powerful topical index search engine. And this can be so useful. We can be at university or at school or at at, at work. And a subject comes up, a new dinosaur discovery, a new claim about our so-called ape-like ancestry over hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, none of us have got all the answers. And we can use a website like this to equip ourselves to be able to continue the conversation or send a link to somebody to show the wonderful logical coherence of the Word of God and how it makes sense of the world in which we live. We've also got a strong social media presence. And then we've got our Infobytes. And uh, what we do with this, again, if there's a new scientific discovery, a new claim in the media about our uh, evolution or whatever, very soon one of our writers writes an article Often it's one of our scientists, and we send that out to our mailing list. So if you'd like to subscribe, by the way, this is a, a free resource. Anybody here like free stuff? Amen. That's just the same as back in Cape Town. Uh, so we, in a moment, we'll pass these clipboards around. Uh, my helpers will come to the front just now, pass the clipboards around. And if you'd like to subscribe, just give us your name, your email address, and your postal code. That's all we need. Uh, so if my helpers could come to the front and uh, just pass them on if you've already subscribed or not wanting to subscribe to our free InfoBytes. This is a very unusual looking map of the world. Uh, what they've done here is they've made the various regions of the world proportional in size to the number of immigrants to those regions over the last few decades. And this was done in the year 2000. Since then, uh, it's changed dramatically as people have uh, abandoned the Middle East and tried to live in different parts of the world. But the question is, why do everybody want to go and live uniquely in those parts of the world? Mainly uh, USA, Canada, Northwestern Europe, and Australia account for about 80% of immigrants worldwide over the last few decades. Why do everybody want to go and live there? And I'm sure you guys could help me with some answers. Job opportunities, freedom of religion, more or less the rule of law, uh, educational opportunities, scientific and medical infrastructure. I could go on and on. And the question is, why are those few parts of the world uniquely identified with what people are looking for? And I want to put it to you here this morning that they were all substantially founded upon a Christian worldview. Never perfect, often with tremendous hypocrisy. But there was enough of a Christian worldview, a Christian consensus that impacted every area of culture, tradition, law, science, education, and politics. And what was that worldview uh, the, the belief that God's word is the truth. Built on that, a belief for 1,800 years of Christianity, a belief in biblical creation, six-day creation a few thousand years ago. And based on God's word as truth, Christian values of mercy, loving God, one man for one woman as the basis of marriage, uh, a love for our neighbors, and the sanctity of life. And one of the most important parts of that worldview is our sense of who we are. The Bible tells us very, very clearly, we are created in the image of God. Male and female, he made us in his image. That's the reason why we make just wonderful music. What a blessing to uh, be in this worship time this morning why we invent things and paint things and communicate and laugh and love and all of the incredible things that set us apart uniquely from the animal kingdom is because we are created in the image of God. We're not God, but he's made us something like himself. We're also fallen in the image of our ancestor Adam, and we'll speak a bit more about him just now as well. And, you know, this view of who we are totally, totally transformed the world in which we live. Many of us are not aware of these kinds of histories. In our own history here, in Kursi Albert lutuli in response to being criticized in the, in the local press for going overseas, that this was spoiling him, for him to go overseas, he said, I was spoiled by being made in the image of God. His powerful Christian convictions and worldview made him realize that he had just as much right to go overseas as anybody else. The biblical worldview was the foundation of the resistance movement against racism throughout the world. John Dubé, Saul Plike, founders of the ANC, Robert Subukwe, I could go on and on, Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in America all had solid Christian worldviews that gave them a basis for equality. Even many Europeans recognized the basis of those societies. Jürgen Habermas, a very well-known German sociologist and philosopher, he said this, egalitarian universalism, ideas of freedom, solidarity, autonomous conduct of life, emancipation, individual morality of conscience, human rights, and democracy is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Everything else is idle postmodern talk. He's not a Christian. He's got a Marxist background, but he recognizes the foundation of the Western world. Of course, that foundation is falling apart. Europe is a post Christian world, post Christian society, because that worldview is has been replaced by another one the idea that man decides truth and not God. Over the last few decades, especially increasingly a belief in evolution as the secular humanist myth of creation, how we got here without God. Secular humanism is the religion of much of the western world today. And based on the idea that man decides truth, uh, we find things like abortion, racism, pornography, sexual perversion. And as Christians, we can be very, very troubled by those things and we should be. But what we lose sight of is that it begins down here with the delusion that man decides truth and not God. And there's probably been no greater erosion of the Christian worldview than our sense of who we are and who our neighbors are. Charles Darwin, a few years after writing Origin of the Species, wrote a book on human evolution, The Descent of Man, published in 1871. And in it he said things like this, At some future period not very distant, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. And these ideas began to be promoted throughout the Western world. In Europe, influential scientists like Eugen Heichel, uh, he was known as Darwin's bulldog in Europe, Um, Ernst Heichel, Heichel, would go on road shows speaking to the public, using posters like this, teaching that we had evolved from these ape-like creatures over hundreds of thousands of years. We're still teaching that to our kids in school today and placing black people as some kind of intermediate between what he believed to be these savage races and civilized races. And these are the ideas that are informing our young people today. And what are the implications of these ideas of evolution? Well, here's an ex-atheist. He died a couple of years ago. He's no longer an atheist. Dr. Bill Provine, professor at Cornell University, he said evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear, there are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. No ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. How did he get out of bed in the mornings with a a worldview like that? But you know, that is the logical implication. If we got here... By millions of years of these random processes of mutations, survival of the fittest, elimination of the weak. And this worldview is devastating culture. Devastating culture and families and societies. And it's what is... Do you know that throughout the Western world, throughout the Western world, suicide is a higher cause of death than motor accidents and many of those are young people that are taking their lives and taking the lives of others as well often and this is what our young folk are are faced with today here's some classmates speaking in between classes and he says to her you seem a bit down your science class went on for ages what happened she said teacher said we're nothing special We, we just came from pond scum we're just evolved apes so her other friend asked what are they teaching in your next class (laughs) Self-esteem. <laughs> now, do you see the disconnect there? Yeah, you know, we should be equipping and teaching our young people to respect themselves and respect their neighbors. But what is the foundation of that if we got here by these millions of years of random processes and evolution beginning with the Big Bang? And of course, this is impacting the church as well. The George Barner Christian Research Group in America have found that 60% of young people that are involved in their churches in their teenage years fail to continue with that Christian walk in early adulthood. Why? Leave home, go off to university, constantly indoctrinated in evolution, and young people are smart. Many of them recognize that the Bible and evolution cannot both be true, and they walk away. They think the Bible is just stories, and they walk away from maybe the faith, the Christian faith in which they have been raised. So we might think, well, you know, doesn't science prove that the Big Bang is true and millions of years is true? And therefore, if we're Christians, we've got to somehow fit these ideas into our Christian belief and into the Bible. Well, isn't that getting things the wrong way around? This claims hundreds of times to be the inspired Word of God. If we're Christians, this should be our authority through which we evaluate the constantly changing ideas of men. We shouldn't be putting those ideas in authority over God's Word. But let's look at a bit of the science And the first thing to recognize, and this is incredibly important, is that there are two broad categories of the way in which science is conducted. The first is operational or experimental science. This is science done in the laboratory, out in the field. doesn't matter whether a scientist is a Christian or an atheist. They'll do the same experiments, make the same observations, broadly get the same results. This is the science that put men on the moon Gave us GPS and cell phones and iPads and just amazing medical advances, things like magnetic resonance imaging. Who here has had an MRI scan? Okay, a whole bunch of you, every church I go to. Do you know that that technology, the primary inventor of that technology, was a Dr. Raymond Demadian, a Bible-believing, creation-believing medical scientist. Young people especially, don't let anybody ever try and tell you that it's unscientific to believe in creation. That's a malignant tumor I had removed from my thigh uh, uh, just over three years ago. So that's the type of wonderful technology that came from experimental or observational, operational science. But there's another broad category of science, and that is looking at the evidence in the present, uh... Skulls, fossils, mountains, uh, valleys, canyons, and trying to reconstruct the past, the origin of something. When it lived, when it died, how it died, how it fossilized. Can we experiment on the past? Can we observe the past? Anybody invented a time machine yet? Hasn't been done. We can't travel back and observe the past or experiment on the past. And so when it comes to that type of science, historical or or forensic or origin science, we have to tell a story. It's not the same science as gave us this thing. It's a different type of science. And when it comes to that interpretation of the evidence, we do it through a worldview, through our belief system, through our faith system, And there are many evolutionists that recognize this. Professor Richard Lewontin, geneticist at Harvard, he said this a few years. He said, we take the side of science in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have an a priori commitment to materialism, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That is the number one rule of science today, no God allowed. Okay, that would come as a surprise to the fathers of science, Maxwell, Faraday, Johannes Kepler, probably the most famous of all, Sir Isaac Newton, who were all Bible-believing, creation-believing scientists, but that is the rule of science today. But those early scientists, this was their worldview, the framework of understanding and of interpreting the world in which we live, beginning with a supernatural creation by God a few years ago, including the creation of Adam and Eve on day six, the ancestors of all of us here, the corruption, the curse that came when Adam rebelled and disobeyed his creator the catastrophic judgment flood of Noah's day, one year judgment flood of Noah's day about 1600 years after creation. And again in response to rebellion a couple of year, 100 years after the flood, as mankind stuck together at Babel, there was only one language spoken. They began to build this um tower to the heavens, some kind of man-made religion, and God came and confused their languages. So maybe different families that could no longer communicate with each other. Abandoned that project at Babel. And began to spread out on the face of the earth. As God had originally told them to do to Adam. And then after the flood. And leading to the different people groups around the world today. And then the covenant with Abraham. God's promise of sending a promised redeemer. Messiah. Jesus Christ who came into the world, took upon him on the cross what went wrong back there at corruption and to make possible the promise, the hope of a future restoration, a future consummation. Parents, all of us, I'm telling you, that is that worldview is the greatest heritage that we could ever give to our children, our young people. It is a theory of everything that explains the world in which we live and that scientists are constantly looking for. They're trying to come up with a theory of everything. That was the life work of the late Stephen Hawking. They will never, ever do so because they have abandoned the possibility of God. In fact, they've banned him. And that worldview is shared by our scientists and many others, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, works for us full-time in America today, former New Zealand chess champion, a physical chemist, absolutely a brilliant mind. For those of you who know your chess, he held Boris Spassky to a draw many years back, and we're very fortunate to have him on our team in the States today. But that worldview in science has been replaced by another one. And there's only two possibilities. Either God created the heavens and the earth, or somehow they made themselves. And that is the worldview of philosophical naturalism, the idea that beginning billions of years ago with the Big Bang. By the way, do you know that hundreds of secular scientists are abandoning the Big Bang? They say it doesn't add up. It's not in agreement with our observations, and they're calling for a new cosmology. And yet we keep on being told the Big Bang is absolute science. It can't be doubted. Secular scientists are abandoning the Big Bang, because it doesn't work. But a history here on Earth of death, suffering, bloodshed, disease over millions of years, leading to the existence of mankind. That is the kind of worldview that dominates the world today, and particularly science. And that sort of idea began with guys like Charles Lyell, where he began to tell a new story about the sedimentary rock layers. Before him... There were fathers of modern geology that believed that these sedimentary rock layers that cover most of the earth were laid down during that year-long catastrophic judgment flood of Noah's day. But Charles Lyell rejected the truth and the authority of God's word. And so he began, see the statement he made in a private letter to a friend that his goal was to free the science of geology from Moses. Is that a scientific statement or a philosophical statement? It's philosophical. It's born of a rejection of God, and he therefore began to tell a new story, the idea that these layers had been laid down maybe one at a time, these fine lamina over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And so we may think, well, what's the problem if that is a record of millions of years? Well, it's There's a big problem because it's not just fossils. It's not not just rock layers. What do we find in those rock layers? We find fossils, dead things, the remains of uh, creatures that have died and have been preserved in the fossil record. So it's also a record of suffering and death on an unimaginable scale. Let's see how evolutionists traditionally have interpreted the formation of fossils. This is from an Australian textbook. And uh, what do they show here? Fish swimming in the water dies, sinks to the bottom. It's covered in silt. That process uh, recurs over and over again. And look at the story here. Here the mountains are very high. There they've been almost eroded away. So the story being told is that fossilization takes place over a vast period of time, thousands of years. Does that reflect reality? Any of you here gone snorkeling, scuba diving? Huh? few of you ever seen thousands of dead animals lying on the bottom of the ocean waiting to be covered in mud? No, it's not how it happens. What happens when creatures die? Scavengers eat them. They bloat. They float. They decay. And in quite a short space of time, there's nothing left of them. So that story just doesn't add up. So what do we need for fossils to occur. Firstly, we need a healthy living organism, a fish, bird, dinosaur, mammal. We need that animal to be suddenly trapped in a mortar of mud and minerals, keep out the oxygen, keep out the scavengers, keep out bacteria, and allow enough time for fossilization to occur. I've got a couple of fossils here I'll hand around. Uh, Thanks, so, Wayne. Uh, the one is an ammonite fossil. You might, might want to pass that around. And the other is Home and a Lady. It's a model of Home and a Lady. You can relax. It's plastic. Uh, okay. Now, we find fossil beds all over the earth. On every continent. Vast fossil beds in the Karoo. Antarctica has got fossils fossils of marine organisms on the very highest layers of Mount Everest. Billions and billions and billions of dead things buried in rock layers that have been laid down by water all over the earth. Okay, let's put on our Bible glasses. Let's put on our biblical glasses and ask ourselves the question, what event in history that the Bible gives us is a wonderful, perfect explanation of why we find these fossil beds all over the earth. Noah's flood, the biblical flood of Noah's day. where in response to violence in the earth, sexual perversion, demonic activity, just rampant sin. God sent this year-long, catastrophic judgment flood of Noah's day. And we're told that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and it poured with rain for 40 days and 40 nights. That fountains of the great deep burst forth. That continued for 150 days. Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, the release of underground water, steam, ash. And we're told that during that flood, every land-living, air-breathing animal and bird... And man and woman, except for those that were preserved on the ark with Noah, perished in that dreadful judgment flood of Noah's day. And so the fossils are just an amazing, amazing confirmation of the accuracy, the truth of God's word. Some really interesting fo- fossils here, some mating frog hoppers. The fossils are reputed to be 165 million years ago. Uh, from 165 million years ago. So the first question is, well, why haven't they evolved? Because that's what frog hoppers, mating frog hoppers look like today. And the second question is, if it takes thousands of years for fossilization to occur, how'd that happen? <laughs> okay. It's, it's like a snapshot, isn't it? It's like a photograph. It's so clear that fossilization must have been a process that happened relatively quickly. You know, a catastrophic sudden process. In the right conditions, fossilization can occur very, very quickly. Here is a, a felt hat that was buried during a volcanic eruption in New Zealand in the 1800s. And uh, I think it was 20 years later, they dug it up and it had completely fossilized. It All of the The soft material had been replaced by minerals. It was permineralized. It had become a fossil. It was an example of a soft hat evolving into a hard hat. But it didn't take millions of years to occur. Fossilization in the right conditions can happen quite quickly. So the general theory of evolution says that hundreds of millions of years ago, chemicals in a warm pond somehow got together and formed the so-called first single-celled organism, simple organism. There's no such thing as a simple organism. Do you know that from what we've discovered, the simplest bacterium has got 500,000 bits of information in its DNA? There's no such thing as simple life. But anyway, evolutionists believe that from that single-celled organism over hundreds of millions of years, it evolved into all the amazing abundance of life that we have today. Uh, fish-like creatures to amphibious creatures to reptiles to mammals and birds and mammals in to man. So that's the, the general theory of evolution. And so evolutionists are always looking for fossils in between, call them transitional fossils, always looking for them. And, and a famous example of this was Nebraska Man, where uh, back in the early 1900s, uh, they constructed Nebraska Man. And this was based on a tooth, a fossilized tooth, that's all. And based on that tooth, they came up with the tools and what he looked like, this very ape-like creature and how he lived. Well, you know, sometime later it was discovered that it wasn't even a human tooth. It was the tooth of a pig, an extinct pig. Now, evolutionists recognize that today, but what I'm trying to show you is the incredibly subjective nature of interpreting the evidence because the evidence does not speak for itself. Because we cannot observe the past, we have to reconstruct the past, and we do it based upon our belief system, our worldview. Well, what about your dating methods? Don't your radioactive uh, dating methods, radioisotope dating methods prove That some fossils are millions of years old and some rocks are billions of years old. Do you know that age cannot be measured? There is no instrument where you can stick a a needle into a rock or a piece of wood or a fossil and it will give you an age. Can't be done. What can be measured is the amount of these radioactive isotopes like uranium and potassium and uh uh, there's many of them, rubidium and, and so on. So what can be measured in the rocks and fossils is the amount of these minerals, the so-called starting mineral or parent mineral and the daughter isotope and the speed of decay, the speed at which the one radioisotope decays into another. So that can be measured. There are some of these methods that indicate that the earth is only thousands of years old, just as the Bible gives us. The chronologies in the Bible beginning with Adam and how old Adam was, 130 years old when Seth was born and how old Seth was when his son was born, leading all the way up in the line of Christ, leading up to Abraham. There are some of your radioisotopes that that support that thousands of years age of the earth. But all of these methods are based on This principle here, I'm going to test your maths. I'm going to test if you're still awake, in fact. Um, Let's say you walk into a bathroom. You open the bathroom door, you walk inside, and you immediately see that there's 100 liters of water in the bathtub, and the tap is running at 10 liters per minute. How long has that process been going on for? 10 minutes. Your maths is correct. But let's ask ourselves the question... Of how did we arrive at that answer? What assumptions did we use to get that answer? Well, firstly, was the bathtub half empty or half full when it started? We weren't there, right? We don't know. Was water removed or added during that process? We don't know. Did the flow rate increase or decrease or was it even turned off? I live in Cape Town. Okay, The flow rate keeps on increasing and decreasing and being uh, at least threatened to be turned off and in some places it is turned off. So the point is, you were not there in the past. You can only look at these processes in the present and based upon your belief about the past, your assumptions, your faith about the past, you then come up with a result. And all of your dating methods are based on those kinds of assumptions, whether they support the Bible or support millions or billions of years. How could we test to see if these dating methods are accurate or not? Well, how about if we could get a a rock of known age and send it off to a dating laboratory and see what results are obtained? This has been done many, many times over the last 30 years or so. One example, Mount St. Helens in Washington State in America, massive big eruption in 1980 that formed that crater there. In 1986, a smaller eruption that formed this lava dome. And 10 years later, some scientists went and took some samples from that lava dome after the lava had hardened. They sent it off to a secular laboratory, who used potassium argon dating method. It's a very common dating method. And they got results back of 350,000 to 2.8 million years old. For rocks that were 10 years old at the time. So if we cannot trust these dating methods for rocks of known age, there is absolutely no reason to trust them for rocks of unknown age. Many other examples of that. Uh, We spoke on dinosaurs yesterday. So much evidence that dinosaurs lived relatively recently, not went that they didn't go, the idea that they went extinct 65 million years ago are based on these assumptions we've spoken about. One example uh scientists are increasingly finding soft tissue in dinosaur fossils. Uh, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, an American paleontologist, she was looking at T-Rex bones under a microscope. And she began to see what seemed to be soft tissue, sinews, blood vessels. Over time, she's found red blood cells, osteocytes, real protein, bone protein, even DNA sequences in dinosaurs, uh, dinosaur bones. And as a scientist, she knows that that vibration of of cells and atoms, when a creature dies, biological material, it breaks apart. It breaks down very quickly. But she's a good scientist. She made these observations over and over again, 17 times. And she started to try and publish her work. And for some time, she couldn't get published. She said, I had one reviewer tell me he didn't care what the data said. He knew that what I was finding wasn't possible. I wrote back and said, well, what data would convince you? And he said, none. You see, it, it, because it contradicted his worldview, his belief system, he refused to accept the evidence. Well, she's been published many, many times, and other scientists are doing similar work. Now, she's an evolutionist. She believes that dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. And she's uh, busy in research to try and find out how soft tissue could survive for so long. She's got some ideas about the iron content in hemoglobin and that it acts like a formaldehyde to preserve soft tissue. Well, that could explain how soft tissue has survived for 4,500 years. But 65 million years? It goes against everything we know from true observational and experimental science. So why are people so unwilling to accept the evidence and just go where the evidence leads? You know, the Apostle Peter, and I'm not saying this about everybody that believes in evolution. Many of us just believe it because that's what we've been taught to believe. It's what we're taught in Hollywood and in the media and in education, on television... We're just, and so we absorb a lot of these things that we believe. But this question is too important to just take the word of a largely unbelieving world out there. We need to think a bit for ourselves, equip ourselves and think about it uh, ourselves. But do you know the Apostle Peter, 2,000 years ago, he said that in the last days, scoffers would come that would willfully deny two things – Firstly, they would deny that the earth was formed by the word of God. They would deny that God created the heavens and the earth. The second thing that they would deny is that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They would deny the catastrophic flood of Noah's day. Why is that? Well, because if God created us, he sets the rules. He knows what's best for us. And in our fallen state, we don't like that accountability, and we don't like the idea of judgment. Guys like Thomas Nagel, professor at New York University, he said, I want atheism to be true. I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And that is the basis of much of modern science. Unfortunately, over the last 200 years or so, many Christians, good people, godly people, sometimes feeling intimidated by the claims of science, have felt that they are forced to try and fit millions of years and evolution into the Bible. And have come up with all sorts of ideas, all sorts of schemes to try and make them fit. Local flood, theistic evolution, gap theory, day-age theory. It goes on and on. The most popular today is um, uh, creative evolution, that God used creative evolution to create. Do you know that your evolutionists are not impressed by this? In fact, many of your influential evolutionists cannot believe that Christians would try and put this process into the Bible. You have guys like uh, Bill Provine again, he said, one can have a religious view that is compatible with evolution only if that religious view is indistinguishable from atheism. Now, I don't know if I totally agree with him, but that is generally the idea of guys like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and others, they... They shake their heads at the idea that Christians would want to incorporate millions of years and evolution into the Bible. Why is that? Let's think about what it does to Christian doctrine if we try and do that. We quoted John 3.16 just now and and the promise that through faith in Jesus Christ, we should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's think about that. The origin of suffering and death. A very important question. Well, the Bible tells us that when God had finished creating, including Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, he looked at that finished creation and he said, It is very, very good. Now, if we try and fit millions of years into the Bible, it means that by the time Adam and Eve were on the scene, God was looking at a garden of Eden and earth sitting on a record of millions of years of death, cancer, carnivory, suffering. And God looked at that and said, it is very good. Do any of you here think that death or suffering is very good? None of us. And God agrees with us. The Bible tells us God created a perfect earth without suffering, without death. He put Adam into this wonderful, perfect environment. And he said, Adam, go wild. Eat of the fruit of the trees, the herbs of the field. But as a moral being made in God's image, God gave Adam one restriction. To not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the tragic history. Eve, deceived by Satan, she ate of that fruit. She gave it to Adam. He ate of it. They immediately began to die physically. And as their ancestors, or as their descendants, that's why we all come into this world dying. There's a cheery thought. But they also immediately died spiritually. Their relationship that they had enjoyed with their heavenly father was severed because of disobedience, because of sin, and that's why each of us comes into this world needing to be born again by the Spirit of God. To have that relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator, restored through faith in Jesus Christ. Death and suffering is a consequence of of Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion, and the curse that God had promised would occur if Adam obeyed him, uh, disobeyed him in just this one thing. And you know, the New Testament, Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is called an enemy by God. Why would he call death an enemy if he used millions and millions of years of suffering and death to create? If that's how God created, using this process of time, chance, mutations, natural selection, survival of the fittest, elimination of the weak, If that's how he created, the mechanism that he used, and that's the implication, if we try and fit millions of years into the Bible, I don't know that I want to have a relationship with that God. But the Bible tells us that is not how God created. Suffering and death is a result of sin. Many people ask this question, well, doesn't day mean, uh, can can it not mean a long period of time, the word day, in Genesis chapter 1. And the word day in Hebrew, it's just like in English. The the word is yom. And it can have different meanings, a period of time or a single day based on how it's used, the context in which it's used. But in Genesis chapter 1, it's described as a period of light and darkness, of day and night, evening and morning with a number and day plus a number, one day, second day, uh, ordinals, third day, fourth day. So that's how the word day is defined for us in Genesis chapter 1. And if we go outside of Genesis chapter 1 to the rest of the Bible, we find day used like that. Day plus a number is used 410 times. It always means an ordinary earth rotation day. Evening and morning, together without the word day, 38 times, it always means an ordinary day. Evening and morning, with the word day, 23 times, it always means an ordinary day. Night with day, it's used 52 times, always means an ordinary day. So why do we try and make the word day in Genesis chapter 1 mean something else? Because we've been intimidated by the claims, really religious claims, But because they're made in the name of science, we unfortunately can be intimidated into trying to do that sort of thing. But it has terrible consequences. Let's think about marriage. Marriage in the day of Jesus Christ was under attack, just as it is today. And in correcting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus reminded them and he took them back. He quoted from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And he said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. You know, Jesus was just referring to that history given to us in Genesis, that as part of creation week on the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve. He invented marriage as his order, his natural order for society. Well, if the Big Bang is true, billions of years, Jesus should have said billions of years after the beginning of the creation. God made them male and female. Because according to that cosmology, mankind was only on the scene right at the very end of creation, not from the beginning. Was Jesus wrong? Was he misguided? Was he lying? Of course not. He's the creator himself. And he knew exactly what he was talking about. Folks, let me tell you that besides the transforming work of Jesus Christ on people's hearts, the next best thing that we can do for a culture is to encourage, defend, strengthen marriage between a man and a woman. Worldwide, social studies and surveys have shown the direct correlation between much higher outcomes in education, in achievement, conversely, uh, uh, an inverse correlation with suicide, drug-taking, delinquency, sexual promiscuity, and crime. Folks, marriage works, and we should defend it with all our being. Marriage works because God invented it. So these are important questions. Just some of the questions that we try and answer as a ministry. Why does a loving God allow suffering and death? We've dealt a little bit with that today. Where do the races come from? We had great time on uh, Friday night talking on that subject, and I'll deal a little bit with it just now. Why don't we find dinosaurs on the Bible? Do we? Those that were here yesterday, we do. That's right. We do find dinosaurs in the Bible. Who made God? That question we looked at earlier. And, you know, people are overwhelmingly getting their answers to these questions from the secular world. How often are people exposed to this kind of information? Especially our youngsters. Maybe never in their lives. And that's why we are passionate about sharing this information. One of our most uh, wonderful resources, our creation magazine, four editions every year, full color, no advertising, wonderful, easy to understand articles, family articles, a kiddies section in the middle of every edition, an interview with a creation scientist in most most editions. And we just get message after message of how God Has used this amazing information in people's lives. Here's one message here that we got. The magazine creation is the most educational and inspiring magazine I've ever had the pleasure to read. I'm 99 years old. I preach to people with your uplifting magazine. Thank you. Do you know what the coolest thing was about that message? Came to us by email. And if you'd like to subscribe, a one-year subscription is 200 Rand. And we're going to give you opportunity in a moment. Um, And if you subscribe today, I'll give you a free back issue to take with you. A three-year subscription is 520 Rand. And subscribe today, I'll give you a free back issue, a free double DVD set, Creation Not Confusion. And if you pick up the phone and dial now for a a three-year subscription... I'll give you this DVD, How Darwin Got It Wrong, Dr. John Sanford. He's a world-renowned geneticist. He shows from genetics how we're heading downhill. We're devolving, not evolving, and I'll give those away with a three-year sub as well. Uh, For a few rand more, you can add a digital version that you can share with up to five devices, five people. So when the clipboards go around just now, when the sign-up sheets go around, tick either one year or three years. For a few rand more, you can then also add the digital version, ticket on that side as well. Give us all of your details and uh, pull off the stub at the end there and bring it to us at the cash table. Oh, by the way, I've got a card machine if you need to use that, and we'll give you your free gift. So if our helpers again could come to the front and uh, just pass those around. Thanks so much, guys. And just quickly, while those are going around, uh, if, you, if there was one resource that you were thinking of taking home with you, I think every Christian family should have one of these. It's the Creation Answers book. Answers the 60 most asked questions we have received as a ministry over about 30 years. Excellent, excellent book. work in Afrikaans. I did Afrikaans for here. One of our recent books, Evolution's Achilles Heels, nine PhD scientists showing the tremendous weaknesses in evolutionary science. That's also available as a DVD. There we had 15 PhDs take part in that uh, DVD, documentary DVD. Discounted packs two books and a DVD for 260 Rand. Uh, that Creation Answers book, Refuting Evolution, written by Jonathan Safferty. I mentioned him to you earlier. Um, and then basically you get the DVD free of charge in that pack. Lots of little booklets, gay marriage, geology, all sorts of little booklets, alien intrusion, the connection between a belief in evolution and the search for te- extraterrestrial life, billions and billions of dollars spent every year, UFOs, alien abductions, all of these sorts of things. It's a fascinating book. Uh, did I show you the latest UFO caught on tape the other day? Did I show you guys? No? Want to see the latest UFO caught on tape? You knew it was a trick. Okay. Kitty's books either individually or in discounted packs. Uh, DVDs, again, a range of DVDs either individually or in discounted packs of 10. You get 10 DVDs for 600 Rand. There's a 50% discount off those packs. The subject of... Where did the races come from? Excellent, excellent book, One Human Family. Lots of information that I've shared with you this morning. I began with that verse of Peter where he tells us to be equipping ourselves to answer these questions. I left out the last part. You know, we could study the Creation Answers book. We could study the Creation book, uh, the Creation magazine. I've been getting it for our family for about 20 years. Um, you might think I'm clever, but all I've done is read our creation magazine. And you could do that and win just about any argument that you get into relating to origins and lose the person because this is not about winning arguments. It's about the wonderful, wonderful authority and truth of God's word. And the claims of Jesus Christ on people's lives. And so if we use this information, do it with gentleness and respect, with kindness, with empathy. But it is important for us to equip ourselves and to share this information. Because that is the story of where we come from based on evolution. That our young people are being taught at school and university that we've evolved from these ape-like creatures over hundreds of thousands of years. What's the other message there? Not just that we've evolved from ape-like creatures. What's the other message from? Our skin color has evolved from dark to light skin. It's not always presented that way, but it often is. We've evolved to this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Swede on the end here. Okay? That's what our young people are often being taught by that very, very... Uh, Deceitful image This is the true history of mankind We're all descended from Adam and Eve We're all descended from their sons and daughters Genesis chapter 5 tells us they had sons and daughters God said to them to be fruitful and multiply I think Adam and Eve were probably two pretty hot individuals Uh, They were the perfect creation I don't think they needed too much encouragement to multiply. All right? So they had many sons and daughters. We're all descended from Noah and his family, the only eight souls that survived that catastrophic flood of Noah's day. And we're all descended from the different people that began to spread out after the confusion of languages at Babel. And as they spread out from the Middle East, Uh, to different parts of the world, crossing land bridges. Maybe during an ice age, the animals would have done the same thing to different parts of the earth, exposed to different environments, hot, tropical, sunny climates, cold, cloudy, wet climates in northern Europe. So adaptation took place, variation, survival does take place. Natural selection is true, but natural selection creates nothing new. It only takes from existing information in the genome and selects in order to enable creatures to survive in different environments, but it creates nothing new. And so between your different people groups, differences began to occur. And you know, as I look around here this morning, every single one of us are different, different heights, different sizes, nose shape, eye shape, hair color, eye color. Every single one of us is different. What's the difference we tend to make a fuss about? Skin. We call people black and white. This is my colleague, Dr. Don Batten. He's a plant biologist in Australia. What color is he? You guys are smart. You're too smart to fall for it. All right? Okay? Often, often uh, churches say white. And then I say, well, look at the background. That's white. What color is he? Beige. Light brown. Peach, I hear. Peach. Pink. Get all sorts of answers. What color is she? Dark brown. There is nobody here this morning the color of my Bible. Okay? But we live in a world of every shade from very light brown into very dark brown because there is only one skin color. It's called melanin. And those of us that are a little bit melanin-deprived, we've lost the genetic information for our cells, our skin cells to produce lots of melanin. And melanin is a natural sunscreen, so think of the implications for natural selection. We dealt with this on Friday night. Those of you who are dark-skinned, you've still got the genetic information to produce lots of melanin, the same with hair color that's based on melanin and so on. So maybe it's true that uh, blondes lack information. <laughs> they, they've lost the information for... Uh, melanin in their, their hair color. So through graphical separation these changes occur little changes in uh, population group and bring that genetic information back together again. And some very interesting things. Here's a couple. Both of them have different on one dark skin, they're twin battles. That's alright. Of two I've obviously, gone far too. <laughs> One, two. Thank you so much, Steve. My clock's not showing on my print, on my readout, on my display here. But look at their twin baby girls. Brown eyes, dark skin, dark hair, fair, blue eyes, fair skin, fair hair. So you put that information back together again, that would have been in Adam and Eve, and in one generation, you've got both ends of the spectrum. National Geographic magazine, the latest edition, they're confessing their racist past in the latest edition, and they've got another example of these so-called uh, biracial twins, stunning girls, by the way, and um, uh, there's many examples of this. So in one generation you can get both ends of the so called skin colour spectrum. When I when my colleague Dr Han Krier spoke on this, he's a zoologist a few years ago in George, when he was finished, a gentleman stood up at the back and said, Bracey era, Adam and Eve of us coloured <laughs> And you know, Adam and Eve were coloured. And genetically, he's probably right. They would have been mid brown skin colour. And they would have had the genetic information to have light brown-skinned children and dark brown-skinned children. I believe one of the eight ladies here the other night was calling herself Eve uh, after she heard the <laughs> after she heard the, this message. And why is this all important? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. We've learned why we are all perishing because we're all descended from Adam and because we're all subject to the curse to the corruption that came with Adam's sin against his creator but you know the wonderful news is that we're all related to somebody else who is that Jesus Christ fully god conceived of the holy spirit And fully man. Born of the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3 that would crush the head of Satan. Do you know that in the gospel of Luke we're given his biological ancestry through his mother Mary. Going back through Mary's line all the way back to Adam and Eve. Fully man and fully God. Without sin because he was not a child of Adam. But because he was born of the seed of the woman, like all of us, going back to Eve, he was able to bear the consequence, pay the price for our sin upon the cross. He could die in our place as our family redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. Because, you know, a lamb, a bull, or a goat could never, ever pay the price for my sin. It had to be one that could represent me and represent you. And that's our family member, Jesus Christ. Pastor, let me finish with that and hand it to you. Let's give Mark a hand. Well, come let's stand up. I know you've been sitting for a while. what a great weekend. Thank you, Mark. You, you've really labored for us, and, um, yeah, we're so grateful that you're doing what you're doing. That, that there are guys like you out there, um, who are, who are champions for the gospel and defending the gospel and, and giving us a voice amidst a world that is so against, um, God and, and His word. Um, can we give him another hand this morning? Thank you. Uh, um, there, there are so many resources outside to go and, and, and look through and, and purchase and please support the ministry.